0: your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah 13. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for bringing us together this morning to celebrate and acknowledge the beautiful name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Our Father, we want to thank you this morning for the richness of that name, the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We pray this morning, Father, that our hearts will do just that, that as we peer into your word this morning, that you will open up our hearts and minds to the incredible vista that it is of of truth. uh, Help us to see, Lord, the the glories of Christ in all that we uh, look at today. I pray that our hearts will not only um, acknowledge the truth, but, Lord, that we will be motivated to live out the truth and praise your glorious name. And I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Zechariah 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name, and I will answer them, I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is our God. This is the word of God to us this morning. Now, I'm sure you've heard the saying, you can't see the forest for the trees. There's always a danger when you sort of plunge into a text like this. To be, It's as if you're dropped into a forest... And there is a tree that you've just looked at, but you don't really see how it fits into the whole perspective of this grand vista of a glorious forest. So this morning, I, I just want to give you a, a quick look at the, at the big forest before we look at this particular theological tree in, Je- in Zechariah 13, 7 to 9. Um, throughout Scripture, there are, as uh, uh, theologians will say, um, three major epochs, epochs, epoc epochs, that that define the the, uh, the 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 glories of redemptive history: uh, creation, the fall, and redemption. And and I would I would say that I would add to that restoration, because with redemption comes restoration. To relationship and 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 if you know that you understand the nature virtually the theological nature of what God is doing in human history creation fall redemption restoration we are going to in this amazing section of Zechariah 12 10 through uh, 13 to the end thirteen nine. you have this the, the picture of this this grand vista of God's redemptive history and this particular section of Scripture is, is one little part that we need, to, we need to zero in on this morning, but it's, it's impossible to get the fullness of its meaning and the, and the glories that it is to us unless we place it in context in, its, in the grand scheme of things. We need to understand that, that um, the, the picture of history and, and human history in terms of God's creation which uh, suffered uh, the fall whereby mankind rebelled against God, resulted in a redemptive plan, uh, which moves forward and is uh, the, the centerpiece of what we're looking at this morning. Uh, but we need to understand, and, and any chance I get to talk about creation, I, I use that chance because especially when there are students in the midst I only get you for like 45 minutes a week, and the school gets you for five days a week. And I want to make sure that every chance I get, if creation is germane to the topic, I'm going to talk about it for a moment. But we need to understand, in in relationship to what God is doing, that when God created, he called everything good. And when he created mankind, he called it very good. You know your Bibles. Uh, it's important that we understand that there's, there's no compatibility in that whole idea of good and very good with an evolved Adam and Eve, because if anybody knows anything about the process of evolution, there's, there's biting and tearing and, and ugliness and eating and killing, and that's how evolution functions, and no one would call that very good. So, for Adam to be declared very good, there couldn't have been anything very bad happening before him. In, in fact, the very bad stuff happened after Adam and Eve when the fall happened. And we have creation, fall, and the need to reconcile fall called redemption, which is a buying back out of the slave market of sinfulness, redemption, and restoration, And so you have in this grand plan of God from Eden's fall, the storyline of God's redemptive rescue is the calling of a man, Abraham, and a family and a nation and a nation to the nations whereby the Lord was calling for himself a people, purifying a people, purifying a people after his own name, To form an unobstructed relationship in life forever in the final eternal kingdom. That's the the forest. And there are lots of really, really exciting trees to look at. And uh, I I think there's, in in this particular section today, we have a, a, a very explicit description of redemption And restoration for relationship that includes refinement, includes purification, purifying work of God, all wrapped up in these three verses. But I wanted you to see how it is, how it's nestled in the storyline of redemptive history. Uh, There perhaps is no better uh, pickup of this idea than, than the writer of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 and 10, 13 and 14, which reads this way. When he, Christ, had made purification of sins, when did he do that? At the cross. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice... He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. There's a lot packed in there, but it really is covered in Zechariah 12.10 through Ze- Zechariah 13.9. All of what the Hebrew writer says here is that when Christ made purification for sins, he sat down at, at the right hand of majesty on high, waiting... And if we remember the context of what we're talking about in Zechariah 12 and 13, we're waiting for on that day, the day of the Lord, waiting, so Jesus is waiting for his enemies to be in his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made you and I who believe in him perfect forever, the ones, he's, the ones who are being made holy positionally by faith in Jesus Christ we have been made perfect but we are in an ongoing project of being made holy Jesus is purifying us that we might be acceptable in his presence now this work of God in our life is not to make us healthy, it's not to make us wealthy it's not to make us happy, it's to make us holy. Say it with passion and enthusiasm. Holy. So make us holy. I, I know you don't, want, you don't want to necessarily not make us wealthy, not make us healthy, not make us happy, but make us holy. holy. All right. And this is exactly what Zechariah the prophet is prophesying here when he talks about the refinement in verse 9. It's going on. So by the work of Christ, though we are positionally made perfect, when the fountain of God's cleansing flow rolled over us at salvation, through the sacrifice of Christ, we are being made holy through the refining fires of trials and discipline. And both of these are prophesied right here in this text. So when you're asking the question, what in the world is God doing with my life? Every day, no matter what the circumstance, he is making you holy. He is working on your life. He's refining you. He's making you more and more into the image of Christ Jesus. He is moving you from glory to glory, moment by moment. That's what Jesus is doing in our lives. So, This dazzling forest of God's redemptive plan is laid out before us in Zechariah 12, 13 and 14. And there are some stunning trees that we want to look at this morning. uh, Unpacking the elements of the purification reality and what that looks like. What should the faithful expect as we stand gazing uh, at this particular text this morning? Now, the context continues on that day remember throughout this 16 times in these three chapters 12 13 14 16 times it says on that day And that day of course is the time when god visits the earth to judge the wicked and um there are near and far connections to that reality because at calvary the redemptive plan of god was the centerpiece of the redemptive plan of god occurred at Calvary where wickedness was dealt with to be finally dealt with on that day. And we have this plan rolling out. And so we have in particularly in Zechariah here the, the prophecy of coronation, the prediction of, of the, the coronation of the king. Jerusalem will be the, the grand place in the first verses of chapter 12 and, and the Lord will defeat all the enemies of, of Israel. And we see all of this on plane but uh, playing out. But, but along with all of the details of the conquering shepherd, uh, we have details of a suffering shepherd in this text. And, and this, this juxtaposition, uh, this parallel, all this runs, runs throughout these chapters has, has been traditionally quite confusing down through the ages. In fact, so much so that, that the Essenes, who were a, a community of people, ...who lived at the time of Christ... ...in fact, John the Baptist came out of this community... ...they believed that there would be two messiahs. That there was a suffering messiah... ...and that there was a conquering messiah... ...on the basis of how they studied the scriptures. Israel itself has, has, has misunderstood... Uh, ...desperately misunderstood the teachings... ...of the Old Testament scriptures... ...and deemed themselves as an ethnic group... ...the suffering messiah... And they're looking for the Messiah who will be the conquering Messiah. That's why they did not respond to Jesus as the suffering Messiah, because they were looking for a conquering Messiah. And and in these texts, you have this play back and forth of these two realities. And and we need to understand that the, the kingdom was legitimately offered to Israel when Christ came the first time. That's why he stood on the on uh, overlooking the city of Jerusalem, saying, you oh, know, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you had only understood the day of your visitation, how I, like a, a mother hen, longed to pull you under my wings, but you would not have me. God himself uh, came to offer to them the conquering Messiah, and they rejected him and had him crucified on a cross, as it was prophesied. So you have this mysterious mixture that makes perfect sense to us because we're a long time down the, 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 uh, the timeline of redemptive history. We get to look back at all of this stuff that's already happened and say, of course, how could you miss this? It's right here in the text. But let, let us make no mistake here, without the suffering Messiah, there could be no on that day. There would be no conquering Messiah. Without the cross, there is no coronation. And this is the prophecy that is embedded in Zechariah. And we can't miss it. We, we must not miss it. So by way of review, are, are you up for a bit of review? Because I want to put it back in context so we don't get out of sync here. And, and from my experience, review is always a good thing. Because for some people, even review is brand new. Even if they heard it before. Like, I never heard that before. Yeah, you heard it last Sunday. No, I I I, never, I don't remember. Um, well here li- listen here by review we learned last week in verse 10 of chapter 12 that God's redemptive grace is the front is at the front of the line right we learned that that the ha- habits of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication God saves people by the outpouring of his undeserved favor that's what we learn that's what we know and, and we understand that the idea of redemption is to buy us back out of the slave market of, of sinfulness. That's what redemption means, to buy back. That's why I don't buy the whole idea of free will. People aren't, people aren't living in free will. They're living in sin. They're living in, as slaves to sin. The, the freedom comes in Christ. Christ brings freedom. Freedom. The truth will set you free. That's what the scriptures teach. We are freed from the slavery of sin by the grace of God that is poured out upon us. And we also learn that not only is a spirit of grace, but a spirit of supplication. We are able to be supplicants. The redeemed are able to respond in repentance. We're able to reach out. Included in that undeserved favor of God is the enablement to respond to God. Dead hearts are, uh, using old theological terminology, are quickened by the Holy Spirit. Uh, We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were on the mat spiritually, and nothing could get us off the mat except for an intervention by God Himself who quickens us, who brings us to life and enables us by His grace to respond to His love toward us. That's how salvation works. And proof of grace is the fact that we turn from our idols, we turn from our sin, we turn from ourselves, and we turn to the Savior. That's the definition of repentance. And we learned here last week that there's a great deal of sorrow in genuine repentance when we come to a recognition that our sins pinned Jesus to the cross. There's a great sorrow that that overcomes our hearts when we take that all in and understand that Jesus, our glorious and wonderful Savior, loved us so much and died because of our sinfulness, died because of my sinfulness. That's repentance. And Jesus embarks upon the repentant for a life change called purification He refines us, and that's where this text continues to take us. We want to handle a couple of questions today. What does this piercing mean? Because we pick up in the text, the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me, the one they have pierced. And the question is, what does this piercing mean? And and the second question we want to look at today, which is answered in verses 7, 8, and 9 of chapter 13, who is the one pierced? These are critical questions for us to answer. So, what we learn, uh, according to chapter 13, verse 1, is that purification follows repentance. Now, I'm not talking about great gaps of time, you understand this? The salvation experience is, is accordioned in and then there is this perfecting work of Christ and then he, makes a, he is making us holy, sanctifying us over the years to come until the day he comes to get us. Now, in this particular process, though, we realize that there is a fountain, verse 13, that opens up and cleanses us from sin and impurity. The repentant are purified. There follows, repen- purification follows repentance. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilt and stains. There, what did this fountain mean to the eyes and hearts of a Jewish audience? This is packed with imagery and power. There is this fountain. Now, they, they knew that a fountain uh, washing over them was the idea of cleansing from sin and impurity uh, long before Zechariah prophesied this. Uh, the, the water, uh, there's, there's, the, there's two liquids pictured in Scripture, water, whereby God is pictured as the spring of living water. Uh, Jeremiah 2, verse 13 how God cleans us up and makes us fit for his presence. And the water that cleanses us from all impurities and idols. It was a ceremonial uncleanness. Ezekiel 36, 25 to, to 26. Explaining is, Isra- Israel theology. The, the theology of God and what this cleansing was all about. And what water symbolized. This is not a new idea. When they heard this word fountain, there, it was pregnant with theological thought. But not only just water, but there was also another liquid that, 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 that raised up emotions and understanding within the Jewish uh, theological thought, and that was blood. In Leviticus 17, 11, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins, picked up also in the New Testament. It's an ongoing reality that blood makes atonement. It is what brings a sinning person uh, back to a relationship with God to have their sins atoned for, the cleansing from sin that separates us from God. Two liquids involved in cleansing, fountain, purification, theological thought to the Jewish mind. Now, these two liquids involve blood and water, are particularly important at Calvary. A remarkable phenomenon happened at the cross, not accidentally, not incidentally, not just medically, although it often rests there and that's the only explanation, but prophetically, providentially. When John the Apostle gazed at the one they had pierced on the cross, He states this, John 19, 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. There's our word, pierced. And immediately there came out blood and water. Now, beloved, in crucifixion, in the process of crucifixion, it was normal to break the legs ...of the one crucified in order to speed up the death process. It was not normal to thrust a spear into the side of the one being crucified. There was no interest in speeding up uh, death with a spear. It was, the idea was to break legs. To make the, to make the, um, uh, the, the torture and punishment that much more difficult... In the case of Jesus, they did not do the normal, his legs were not broken, and they did do the not normal. They speared him in the side. Now, they didn't break his legs because in Psalm 34:20, it had been prophesied: He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. In Zechariah 12:10. It prophesies that he will be pierced. And this fountain theology explains why blood and water was so critical in that moment. Every little detail of theology is played out for the audience of Calvary. That their hearts might be broken and they might turn to the one in whom they had pierced. And repent with great mourning, the kind of mourning like someone mourns when they have lost their only son. That's the kind of mourning. And so we have this incredible reality pictured at the cross, the breaking of the power of sin, the removal of the penalty of sin by this fountain that washes over us because of the grace of God fully superintended by Almighty God to the very detail. Deliverance from the penalty and cleansing from defilement found in Jesus' death only. So the simple truth is this. The cross contains every detail God-directed. And a human cannot enjoy the presence and attention of God unless that one has received the cleansing fountain from Jesus. All played out for us here. So that's what the piercing means. Now, who is the one pierced? Well, we're all pretty well primed for that by now, aren't we? But let's look again at the text. Awake, O sword, verse 7, 13, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. The good shepherd struck is the purifier. Let's look at how that plays out. Remember, contextually, the issue is idolatry and false teaching, yes? Look back at verse 2, on that day I will banish the names of the idols. Verses 3 and 4 talks about false prophecies. The context is idolatry and false teaching. And God goes to war against radical disloyalty to His person and word. Idolatry, supplanting the very person of Jesus. False teaching, supplanting the very word of God. At the cross, God goes to work against those two things. Goes to war against those two things. Contextually, Pastor Nick shared with us, Zechariah 10, had all kinds of false and faithless shepherds. Surely God will choose for them to stand in and, and they can suffer. They deserve to suffer. But that's not who God chooses. God chooses my shepherd... Against the man who is close to me. These words, my shepherd, literally, my companion, God says. The one standing next to me. English doesn't do this justice. Because the the real uh, rich meaning of the man who is close to me is is literally my equal. Uh, Literally divine. What is in this small verse and small phrase for us prophetically is the incarnation and atonement work of Jesus Christ. It's it's stunning. It's mind-boggling what we are reading here. Uh, Both of these are proposed. What God is literally saying is, I'm going to be the suffering shepherd. I'm going to make atonement. The one you have been piercing by how you've been living. In disloyalty to me, which is literally saying, God, I wish you were dead. I prefer idols. The very one you've been piercing. I will be the one on the cross who you will pierce. I will be the one who is the shepherd struck, and I will be the one who makes relationship possible, which is atonement. And we, declares the Lord Almighty, strike the shepherd. Now, Origen, an ancient Christian interpreter um, who uh, from Alexandria 184 to uh, 253 AD, and by the way, Origen wrote lots of things that... We wouldn't agree with, so just in case you say, I'm not endorsing all of Origen. I'm simply saying he got it right here. When he notes in, in Exodus 17, verse 6, that um, Israel was, would, could not get water to drink and quench their thirst until the rock is first struck. And the Apostle Paul picked up on that Picture in the wandering of Israel in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, and, and clarifies the reference by saying the spiritual drink time of Moses was from the spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. And we see these words this, that are all coming together now the word strike struck the rock. Paul calls the rock Christ Jesus. In Isaiah 53, verse 4, it says there, we esteemed him stricken by God, in reference to the Messiah. We, we deemed him smitten. In verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him. And so we have here Jesus' own understanding. If we go to Matthew 26... We have Jesus' own understanding of himself and his ministry when he, when he states this in, in Matthew twenty six thirty one. Then Jesus told them this very night, you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. I want to stop there for a second. When it comes to interpreting Scripture... I can bring you all kinds of commentators. I can talk to you about origin. I can talk to you about the Apostle Paul. But when Jesus Christ interprets Scripture for us, by quoting from Zechariah, saying, this is that, <laughs> it, it's settled. I, I mean, I, we don't have to look any further, really. When we ask the question, who is the one pierced? Jesus is already declaring who it is. It is none other than Christ himself. And Jesus, interestingly, centers his understanding on these uh, Old Testament prophecies, uh, which are his word, of course. And um, in Isaiah 53, 6, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We scattered, we're scattered, just as it is that it talks about here. And of course, Peter says to Jesus, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. And I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. And we know how that all worked out. They all cut and ran, just like Zechariah prophesied, just like Jesus, who stated uh, the prophecy of Zechariah. And Jesus, interestingly, says to them, yeah, yeah, yeah. But by the way, when you do, meet me in Galilee later on. Meet me in Mount Galilee. Which, which, which. By the way, I mean it, it. It. Jesus reenacted the exile of Israel right here in this text for us. Uh, Israel was wandering around in the wilderness and, and were, we're or, or or were sorry we we're, we we're, um, um, rescued, redemptively rescued out of Egypt, wandering around the wilderness. And, and uh, Moses leads them to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, uh, the giving of the law is presented to them and the rescue of God's people. And then Jesus, not accidentally, uh, but providentially says, meet me at Mount Galilee. And when they meet him there, the resurrected Jesus he hands down to them the new covenant, the, new, the great commission, uh, whereby they are now the final exile representing the people of Israel, and now we have this new community. And, and following that, in the text of Zechariah, we have um, refinement now uh, that removes impurities. Notice this. Uh, we've, we've passed now strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. We know when that is at Calvary. And, I will, and then after that, it says, I will turn my hand against the little ones in the whole land, declares the Lord. Two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. When is that? Well, after Calvary. After Calvary. Now, Jesus had stated in John um, 16, verse... Um, 16 um, in verse 31 he says you believe at last jesus answered but a time is coming and has come when you will all be when you will be scattered each to his own home you will leave me all alone yet i'm not alone for my father is with me i have told you these things so that in me you may have peace in this world you will have trouble but take heart i have overcome the world so jesus makes it abundantly clear that after this will be tribulation and trials and um, it, it goes on to say to refine them like silver, to test them like gold. Expect tribulation and trials. Two-thirds uh, will be uh, perish. Now, when? You know, we don't know for sure, but we have some, some historic, uh, op- some sto- some historic uh, realities of this very thing. Um, we know that in 70 A.D., the Romans sacked Jerusalem and, and there were uh, many Jews who died at that we know that in 132 AD to 134 AD the Bar Kokhba revolt took place uh, led by a man Bar Kokhba who, uh, who uh, at that time uh, the estimated numbers of Jews that were slaughtered was over half a million as they revolted against Rome and that's when when they removed the name of Judea and inserted the name Syria-Palestine uh, which has been a, a, a hassle to this day, where the Jews still want to call the, the land they live in, the land of, of Israel, and, and the Palestinians say, no, no, it's the land of Palestine, uh, because it was changed to Syria-Palestine at the Bar Kokhba revolt in 132 AD. And then you have, down through history, uh, continued persecution against the Jews to the point of World War II, where Hitler was responsible for the death of 6 million Jews, the point where it was suggested there may have only been one million Jews even left in the world. So you have this, this prophetic statement of two-thirds being struck down, yet one-third will be left in it. This, this glorious promise of remnant who will believe and follow and, and be part of the refining process of God. And we are a product of that remnant that has, has, has uh, been faithful to Christ. And here we are. And so we have this promise of refinement. That's what God is doing in our lives. And, and, uh, and so um, as gold is refined, as silver is refined to, to remove the impurities, we too can expect purification to take place in our lives. That's why John writes that we are in this world um we are attached to its effects but we are not of this world we are detached from its hold on us our loyalty john recorded christ's um um prayer and our loyalty goes to christ so what we see here is trials and troubles and struggles from calvary to coronation So if you're wondering what's going on in your life, what's going on in the world, what in the world is God doing, understand this, that prophetic, redemptive history makes no provision in its timeline prior to the eternal kingdom for an age of health and wealth. It just does not. There's nothing there. Refinement now, by the way, drives us to indivisible loyalty to God. If you're asking the question, why, oh God, why is my life like this? Why so many troubles? Why so many trials? Why so many struggles? I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is our God. Refinement, beloved, secures the relationship we have with God. We're just about finished now. The purpose of refinement drives us to relationship. Result, they will call in my name. Right now, his image is being refined in us through reformation that comes from trials and troubles and struggles. And restoration of covenant relationship is the outcome and product of the challenges that we have in our life. God will answer and lay claim to them two sides to a real relationship. It it, it clarifies our identity. He's making us more like the Savior. And um, because of his cross work, the Holy Spirit empowers the justified, those who declared righteous, to live the Christian life of love and loyalty to Christ. That's what happens here—to enjoy a relationship of covenant, honoring the rule and reign of Christ in our lives. That's what God is doing in your life and in my life, and we are able to say that that Christ is mine and I am His. The real cling to their real identity. We are not people who are suffering from an identity crisis the refinement that is taking place in our life enables us to be more and more convinced and convicted that I am his and he is mine. When people ask you, who are you? I'll tell you who I am. I am the one who belongs to Jesus and Jesus belongs to me. That's who I am. That's what this text promises. And and there are, there are, unfolding benefits to that reality they will call on my name and i will answer them the glory we sung this this morning you call on the lord we we are the people of the world who get to call on the true and living god and he actually answers us now that answer may be yes that answer may be no that answer may be wait but god hears our prayers and answers us. That's who we are. That's our identity. And in the refining process of what God does to us, he refines us to be more faithful and more loyal to Christ and his commands. After all, Hebrews 5.8 reminds us that it was Christ himself who learned obedience through that which he suffered. And and then finally you notice here that that I will say they are my people people. You know, the the living God trumpets from heaven this morning upon this gathering and says, look at them. They are my people. What a glorious thing to have said about us. And we will say, they will say, and the Lord is our God. That's the glories of this promise and this prophecy. By the way, I want you to notice it's It's my people. It's us and God, not me and God. It's our God collectively. The Word of God always talks about us in community. We we think and act together because we are a body, not an organ. And that's the the emphasis here is is, um, community, not independence. And it's a glorious thing. Our God, us and God. They are my people. What's God doing? He's making you and me more than ever like himself. Those who have been made perfect by his one sacrifice are being made holy. That's who we are. And so we turn our back on sin and idols, and self, and we turn to the living Christ, and trials, and tests, and struggles are the way he weans us off idols, and off of ourself, and off of our sin, that we might be more and more like the Savior, because we are his people, and he is our God. Our Father, thank you so much. We praise you, we thank you, Lord, for the glories of this truth to us may we benefit from all that Christ has done for us and may we not waste any trial or any struggle or any test or any difficult time let us not waste these times as you draw us into your heart i pray for jesus sake amen what glorious grace of our almighty god who would allow us to peer at the vista of his redemptive history forest and for a moment allow us to drop into that forest and stand before the tree upon which our savior was crucified for our salvation there are two ways the decision of our heart can go this morning there are some in here this day who have never fallen on their knees before the cross of calvary and Invited the Lord Jesus Christ to be merciful to them a sinner to save them from their sins and take them into his glorious family That's what we should do when we encounter Calvary And I invite you to do that if you've never ever Responded to the invitation of God for salvation in Christ Jesus but for the most of us here this morning when when is the time when you find your heart growing most in Christ Jesus is it not in those times of trials and tests and struggles the times of refinement so there's an explanation for that this morning it's because the perfect are being made holy more and more into the image of Christ Jesus saying no to the things that displease Him and yes to the things that make us more and more like Him as He moves us through time closer and closer to spending forever with Him cooperate with it glory in what Christ is doing in your life He is your God, and you are his people. Rejoice in that, always. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your work in our life. We thank you for explaining it to us in advance, that you are the God who has washed over us with a fountain of cleansing and now continues to clean us up. Fit for glory, O God from glory to glory. Thank you for your amazing patience with us, your work in our life. Lord, help us to embrace all that you're doing in particular, to deepen our relationship with you. When we are tested and tried and struggling and and, and frustrated, oh Lord, help us to call out to you. They will call out to me, he says, and I will answer. Thank you, oh God, in Jesus' name, amen.